Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 11 with Joseph Bievenu and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. All right, so today we're going to talk about book-length poems. The long form that many young MFA students don't have enough patience to create these days. Well, I think you get, well, maybe. You get a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people trying to write that while they're in the MFA program, I think. Are they? Well, I don't know. It happens. <laughs> that actually a, a poet would take the time and effort to produce like a, a long poem? Well, I think that's something we'll talk about, but there's some, in some ways it's harder because... Uh, you know, it takes a lot more effort, like you're saying, and you need to stick with it. But it's also kind of forgiving in some ways. I think you can pass off some stuff sometimes if you're writing a long poem. I think one of our former guests on the show, Jess Fiorini, said she was working on a long poem. So I'd like to hear about that when that comes out. We yeah, gotta be, we gotta, we gotta remember to ask her, her about back that. For that. Yeah. Uh, but I thought we'd just talk about today, like, what are some of the long poems that we like? What are some of the long poems that are out there? I don't think people always read them but because as much as they're a lot of effort to write they're also take some patience and effort to read i think a lot of the times and i think it's fair to make a distinction from the start here when we talk about this that we're not actually talking about serial work we're not talking about you know uh dream songs or the cantos yeah i mean the distinction's sometimes a little tricky but i mean if we want to be really basic about it i mean you can kind of divide all poetry into lyric or epic right in a way um you've either got something that's sort of working in a lyric mode that are these shorter pieces talking directly to someone and then you've got epic which are more narrative and longer poems and then you've kind of got things in between and i think all book length poems are probably heading more towards that epic end Even if you try to avoid having a narrative, you probably do when you have a longer poem there. Uh, So now you're making a distinction between lyric and long poem. Yeah, I think there is a distinction there. Okay. Lyrics are kind of always shorter, right? Sure. I mean, there is also the element of addressing someone, I suppose, in a lyric. But But for clarification of this podcast, we're talking about... (laughs) The full book poem. The full book poem. Although some of them could probably have sections in them, but like you're saying, I think something like that. Some things are more like collections of lyrics, even if they're interrelated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I think you mentioned, like dream songs. Like sure, Jerryman. I don't consider that a book length poem. It's yeah, a ser- it's a serial work. It's a serial work. They're all related thematically, and they all they all work together. So, in you know, they, they it's unlike just a collection where things just happen to be put together. But but I don't really consider that a book-length poem, right? Okay. Um, but like the cantos, serial work, again. Yeah. Okay. Although I think he considered that a long poem. A book-length poem. A book-length. Well, that's kind of that's kind of in the like gray area where I'm not right. I'm not sure what I would say, but but like Maximus I think that's the Maximus poems. I think that's a bit of a gray area too. It is a little bit of a gray area. Although I, that that I think you can make a better argument for than the Cantos to me. Well, because he said, I mean, it's the Maximus poems, so I guess it is a serial work. Yeah, I think ti- it's still kind title. of a serial work, right? Yeah, but we're talking specifically here about uh, like works like. Well, when you say book like poem, I I admitted earlier that uh, that. Some of the first things that we're taught, actually, when we when you go through the canon and you, you go through the academic system of, of a world literature, English literature, we first thing we get taught, thrown at us, is Beowulf. Yeah, and, you know, classic sort of sense of an epic poem there. Um, and it's interesting, probably the only thing we read from Old English at all, most of us, right, uh, is the epic poem. We kind of don't give any attention to the shorter works of Old English. No, I think we. I'm just trying to think about what we hit there. Uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We, that's, but that's not Old English. That's no, it's not Middle English. Middle English. Yeah. Chaucer, Middle English. Yeah. So Old English. I think the only thing we touch really is it's Beowulf. Usually, sometimes Beowulf. you might read the Dream of the Rude. 
Uh, Don't even know anything about the Dream of the Rude. It's and but it's also got a little bit of a narrative to it, and it's longer than some of the other pieces. It's kind of like about the cross, maybe. Is the is the delineation of epic poem? Would you say is uh, a uh, a classical delineation? So like. We say if we say epic poem, we don't. We're not talking book length poem. We're just talking that that gets placed in a different category because doesn't epic technically mean it's journey? Well, when you start looking at so we can't put the Iliad and the Odyssey in this category. It, you well, I think you can, but I think but I think that gets complicated. I think when you're talking about Greek and Latin, there's a metrical component which is part of what makes it an epic. So it's more. But, so that would then be more. Lo, more. But it. But they are. They. They typically are book length. Although there are some authors who wrote kind of mini epics, which are strange because. How can you have a mini epic? Well, they're shorter, and then they often. I'm going to the store for some beer now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, kind of interesting, right? <laughs> but I think even 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 thousands of years ago, people were already playing with the genres that existed, which is part of what you have going on, right? You can't ever cleanly put something into one genre or another. There's always that kind of the blur. Authors want to play with that idea. So this that podcast happens. is all about really is the blur, right? <laughs> We're trying to figure out the blur a little bit more. So in- I have a um, a handful of books that came to mind to me that I that I love that are book length poems, and I think you have a few things you wanted to talk about as well. And then I don't know just anything we kind of came across that would be interesting too would be would well, be good. Oh, I do want to mention, though, like, I think we're going to focus on English language poems, although I think there's obviously some things that if we were going to talk about things in translation, like, I don't, I I feel bad not talking about Lautremont and Maldoror in some way, but I feel like there's already so much to talk about in English language, maybe we'll leave that. Leave okay. that alone today, but we we at least got the name in there, so you if you haven't back. read Maldoror, you should certainly read that. It's a big one. Yeah, that is a big one. So what do you? But what do you? What did you bring? Uh, let's talk a little bit about what the some of the things that you. Uh... Well, the first thing that came to my mind was Patterson. Was William Carlos Williams Patterson, which is an amazing book, an interesting book. Well, some some people might say it's not a book length poem in some ways because it's such a strange hybrid of things, right? Because it kind of has this. A lot of it is poetry, but it also has pieces of letters and pieces of historical texts and pieces of geological texts and things. Um, but basically it's the story of the city of Patterson, New Jersey. Sure. Uh, with all these voices. But I mean, to me, it's a book like poem. There's mostly poetry, even though there's these other things that come into Patterson. it. Okay. So, uh, yeah. And you know, it, it does, it does remind me of Maximus poems a little bit because Olson brings in all those like tansy flowers, button, you know, like, yeah, the people of the city, uh, the price of cotton, the price of the halibut. You know, he brings all these like really particular sort of like uh, uh, and, like Pound does in the Cantos. Yeah, and, and he brings these. Uh, it's actually kind of found document in the middle of the poetry yeah, that he like brings. Sort of found documents. Yeah, but but I like that. In I like it actually because it converts it to verse in a certain way. How you read it in a way because you're like well, plugging along in this long poem and then you hit this like rooted artifactual de- uh like data and it brings you into like a reality again and then back out to the the, ver- the verse or like the and later. vice versa i mean it changes the verse too having the having the documents next to them right it makes them feel different yeah again again i think for me this take this takes me right back to the cantos yeah and how pound would do the same thing and bring in a document and you know and he tried to go back and pull all the uh but to me, Chinese and yeah, you know, yeah. To me, what world I like literature. about Patterson is it feels, in some ways, I mean, there is that kind of collage aspect, like you're saying. But in Patterson, it kind of, I guess, because it has that grounding concept of it all being about the city, it kind of feels more to me like it has this kind of multi-voiced effect. Like it's actually different voices speaking, but they're all tied together by. Patterson, right? So it's Patterson's the character of the book in a way, right? And it's got this interesting because it's I mean, it's really probably the best thing about a place ever written. I mean, you know, you think about whatever cities you've lived in in your life, they're these really complicated things and it's hard to talk about them because there's all these there's these intersections of 
the history, the geography, the people, your personal experience of it, the public experience of how it's portrayed, what people think of it that have never been there, what people are, you've got all these things coming together. And I, the way that he stitches those poems into the documents, it really gives you this way of looking at the place from all these different angles at once, which I think we all naturally do when we live somewhere, but it's kind of amazing that in, that this poem can have you do that even, you know, you've never been to Patterson, don't know anything about it, you kind of get the experience of it just by reading it. Sure. Meet Patterson, the city, the person, the streetcar, the street, the street sign, the name, the cat, the dog, the coffee shop, the donut man, you know, like, it's like, when you meet, when you read Patterson, you're like, you keep meeting Patterson. Yeah. You keep meeting Patterson, like again and again and again and again. Exactly. Yeah, you get it over. Well, I mean, just like anywhere you live, you do that, right? You're always meeting the place from different angles. And I mean, well, I mean, obviously, that's something you're interested in. But especially if you start digging into the history of the place, too, which Williams was definitely interested in the history of Patterson, that adds a whole nother level to <laughs> Schick is real dangerous there because, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, you start to have a whole different view on it and well we i there's like a whole podcast there's an entire different <laughs> podcast about this people yeah but patterson i don't know i mean if you haven't read patterson you definitely should uh to me it's the best thing william carlos williams ever did but i think it's under read i don't really know how to read an excerpt from it because it's such a it's hard to find something you could just chance operation that so let's so let's start with a little bit that's just so this bit I'm gonna read one it's gonna start off with a little historical bit and then go into a poem. I don't okay. know, this is kind of random. The seventh December this year, seventeen thirty seven, at night was a large shock of an earthquake, accompanied with a remarkable rumbling noise. People walked in their beds, the doors flew open, bricks fell from the chimneys, the consternation was serious, but happily no great damage ensued. Thought clambers up, snail-like, upon the wet rocks, hidden from sun and sight, hedged in by the pouring torrent, and has its birth and death there. In that moist chamber, shut from the world and unknown to the world, cloaks itself in mystery. In the myth that holds up the rock, that holds up the water thrives there, in that cavern, that profound cleft, a flickering green inspiring terror, watching and standing, shrouded there in that din, Earth, the chatterer, father of all speech. Oh, a neat little section there. Taking us taking us in from, it's like, it's, well, I mean, I don't know if anyone's called, called Williams Cubist, but he's like, he's seeing all these angles. Yeah, all these well, no, different I think especially, kind of it like is kind of Cubist, right? You're reflective, from all these yeah, angles of once, this, yeah. in this, like, you know, way that he's, He's kind of like approaching from a new facet of the gem in different ways. And yeah. Like, and the, but the language is actually that. Yeah. Quilt, he's quilting. He's a quilter. Absolutely. And I guess we should say it's in five parts. Um, it was supposed to be six parts, but he unfortunately died before he finished the sixth section. Ooh. So there's just the sixth part is there, but it's kind of fragmentary. Really? Yeah. And I came across this little interview with him. Uh, where he was talking about Patterson a little bit, and the interviewer asked him, someone remarks in one of these clippings that there's no reason the poem should ever end. Part four completes the cycle. Five renews it. Then what? And William says, and he's laughing when he says this, go on repeating it. At the end, the last part, the dance. And then the interviewer quotes, and we can know nothing and can know nothing but the dance. All right. Awesome. Yeah. So he's just like, okay, just read the last part again and again. Yeah. You're good. <laughs> so that's Patterson. Uh, I mean, it's he, you can definitely make an argument for that he, being one of the greatest uh, American book-length poems. Dance. So that's that's uh, Williams. So that's Williams, Patterson. take a look at Williams. Uh, so what's something? Is there anything newer? Or are you going? Are you are you bringing it? To I'm not the, giving these in any particular order here. Okay. For some reason, I don't know. What's the What's the most recent? Bernadette Mayer's Midwinter Day is, I think, the most most recent one on there. Okay. Um, oh, she wrote it in the 70s. She wrote it in 1978. But I guess for some reason it was not published until, until 1982. It happens. So this is a very different kind of book-length poem because it's much more personal. The idea of the poem um, is that she wrote it all in the course of one day in 
uh, some on a winter day in 1978, right? Really? Without that's the idea, and it kind of follows through the day. You start at the start at the beginning of the day and, and get to the end, which is kind of neat. And it's a very different kind of kind of uh, kind of book for sure. It's also in six parts, strangely enough. Um, I liked this quote Alice Notley said about it. Uh, she said it's an epic poem about a daily routine, and that's kind of that's kind of what's happening here, right? There's a lot about it's it's really autobiographical, but it's the sort this sort of stream of thought about the everyday and this kind of the kind of idea that everything can be poetic, and especially the especially the routine things that you do every day. And there's a lot of these kind of cycles of the things that you repetitively do, and how that fits in with the cycles of nature, and how that fits in with the cycles of motherhood because she talks about her daughter a lot in there and and about like aging and 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 eventual death too kind of comes up in it is there any list making in it there's a lot of list making. that's what i thought that's how i know this poem that's how i know this poem there's a lot See of how, lists right yeah. how did i know that yeah. how did i know to answer ask that question yeah you're you're now, absolutely right now, there's yeah now i remember this this poem i remember it it's there's like all this like it's like neurotic list making, isn't it? There, there's it goes into that from time to time. Here. In fact, uh, the section I was looking, I was trying to find a spot to kind of pick out. There's so much that's good, but I can't even read this whole list. It's so long. I don't know. Maybe I should just to give some sense of the list. Sure, it goes into it, to it a little bit. But the meal I mentioned, which had only been pot roast with gravy and potatoes, <laughs> not less remembered, is worshipped and defended whenever I see men in trees. And I want to be a worker in trees. Winter long, I would paint the city if I see a cityscape. And from what I saw, I even want to be involved in photorealist painting, airbrush painting, pattern painting, and proposals for sculptures, performances, photos and texts, color field painting, new image painting, silkscreen collage and watercolors, monoprints, landscapes, lithographs, etchings, body art, silver point, pop art, op art, nudes, California funk art, Frescoes, floor sculpture, all kinds of wall pieces and shaped canvases, outdoor projects, snow sculptures and still lifes, architectural drawings and post-minimalist sculpture, <laughs> sky sculpture, all kinds of oil and figure painting, woodblock prints, murals, bronzes and monuments, tapestries, mobiles, seascapes, poster art and films, minimal painting, precisionist painting, formalist painting, new realist painting, minimal sculpture, abstract expressionism, even video art, narrative art, paper reliefs and aquatints. Flower painting, wood carving, sketches and calligraphy, egg tempera paintings, graffiti and all of photography, process art, grid paintings, stripe paintings, light art, happenings, kinetic sculpture, environmental sculpture and pastels, ceramics, multimedia presentations, portraits, social realism and collages. I would even discover roughly adrenaline, air conditioning, a satellite of Pluto, supermassive objects in the centers of galaxies, the airplane, the jet propulsion airplane, helicopters, mass spectrography of stable isotopes, Penicillin, insulin, and its production by bacteria, antimatter, the depths that fish inhabit, the Polaroid land camera, the all-electronic numerical integrator and calculator, the digital computer cloning the cultivation of truffles, the conditioned reflex, the cyclotron, the neon lamp, deuterium, selenese fibers, polyesters and polyamides, the double helical structure of DNA, the tungsten filament, the equivalence of mass and energy, the mercury vapor lamp, nylon, heat death, recombinant DNA techniques, the laser, the stored program computer concept, test tube babies, antiviral drugs, restriction enzymes, paper in the loom, neutron-induced radiation, nuclear fission, the ballpoint, cosmetics, the crossbow, a drop in the sun's temperature, the first gamma-ray spectral line, the rings of Uranus, sulfur ions around Jupiter, a mouse with a human chromosome, a mouse derived from six parents, radar, nuclear reactors, the vacuum electron tube sound, motion pictures, protons, positrons, polio vaccine, gunpowder in the forked plow, the rotary internal combustion engine, the gyro compass, intelligence testing, natural satellites of asteroids, a cure for traveler's diarrhea, the automatic rifle, psychoanalysis, the special and general theories of relativity, alpha and beta particle radiation, gamma radiation, vitamins, color film with three emulsion layers, electron microscopes, geometry, synthetic plastic, the polymerization process, quantum theory, the Wasserman test, the flush toilet, solar weather links, a pocket-sized three-dimensional camera, sulfa drugs, military tanks, tractors, transistors, TVs, the uncertainty principle, the Van Allen radiation belt, zero, the wheel, Lucifer yellow, charm quarks and supernova, an end to locust plagues, 
the reason for the East Coast booms, the synthesis of the transuranic elements, including fermium, americum, einsteinium, curium, berkelium, and californium, animal prescience of earthquakes, gravity waves, antiprotons, the nature of schizophrenia, and the first known noon marker of the summer solstice. I would close my red eyes like copper and watch you by the atomic clock to have the luxury to love, at least in theory, indivisibility for a time in the sweetest exchanges as if the world were not enraged. You go out for cigarettes as if love is not the food of those of us satisfied enough to write, to write, to lend urgency, pleasure, to sing, to celebrate, to inspire, to reveal. You put on your gotten shoes and coat in an image and say you'll be right back. While you're out, love is stored in intensest house, this cave of it. We go too fast, switch from the speed of variegated love. Writing's married and fallen and with family. Though it's more exhausting to love, to write, than to pursue what might have been described about the past as being fast. And it goes on and on. But, I mean, yeah, that, that's a list. <laughs> but I love how she moves from those lists into the these lists, into wow. these kind of personal things and connects them. She, that was getting my heart beating really fast. <laughs> Bernadette, Bernadette's was is slaying it right, right there. Yeah, like in this one, like this moment of this day, you know, that's it's, about as good as it can get. In yeah, a fit of a day of a neurotic list poem, but like also like completely like cerebral and grounded at the same time. Well, in like this, yeah, in that particular list, it's, it's like great. She, this idea of like all these things you want to be able to do everything, like you want to just be involved in all these things, right? She takes like that biographical. Uh, scientific uh, uh, found content uh, laced with her perspicacity and like really compresses it. Well, and it's that, that's what makes it an epic poem in a day. And it's what else not as said. much as it, you know, like we have the quote about it being about the routine, but there, the routine encompasses everything. And there's this, you know, this idea, like I said, I think there's kind of this feeling through the whole book that everything can be poetic, but part of the way that it's poetic is it's all connected, right? It's all a cycle of things, right? And, and I mean, part of what makes it really work is she has this really good attention to syntax and how the things that she sticks next to each other juxtapose in nice ways and how that builds meaning with the, with the, with the things going on that are more autobiographical. It's really nice. So you have a Coke book, huh? Oh, yeah. What's the Coke? So, this is The Duplications, and it's a very huh. different kind of book. I love this book. I've never touched it. Um, not that I haven't. I just, yeah. For some reason, it's not the most well-known. It was the second of his attempt at long, at a long poem book. Okay. First, he had done that Co, A Season on Earth, which I don't like as much, but it's pretty good. But The Duplications is... Unlike the other two poems that we talked about, has it's a narrative poem. It's a weird narrative, but it's a narrative poem. Um, and it's very much in that kind of pop art sensibility of taking a lot of modern things and throwing them together. And in some ways, it's kind of playing with or being a parody of a real sort of epic. And it's crazy and awesome and funny. But to give you a like kind of short description of the plot... So the book opens, a 16-year-old girl gets abducted by a giant ice cream scoop that comes down out of the sky in Venice. What? Venice, Peru, that is, which is an exact replica of the city of Venice, (laughs) created by a wealthy general that is also uh, infested with these giant bees that can be kept out of the buildings if you put giant matzah crackers on the outside of the buildings. This is a Coke poem, not a Marikawi poem. This is a short story. <laughs> this is the beginning of the duplications. That's how the poem opens. Okay, so he's alternate dimensioning. Well, it's just got all these crazy. Is there really a Venice going in, on. in in no? Well, I mean, that's one of the amazing things. So you start off with this this duplicate city of Venice in Peru that this general, this wealthy general, but but not in, the reason, not in Las Vegas. In the Peru. reason it's called the duplications is it's filled with duplications. So. The main two storylines, I guess, although some other things kind of come in, is there's this chemist who figures out that a way to... He likes flirting with girls, so he wants to create artificial women 
So he creates the early girls. And he figures out this way that if you take Finnish dirt and Himalayan white pepper and combine it together with some other things, that he can make these artificial women. Um. This sounds like a Gargamel situation, <laughs> like where... Because, you know, people always forget... I know we're going off track here, but this is a significant, important cultural reference. Uh, people always forget the first episode of the Smurfs. Yes, which is really like going a pretty... off track. You're going to talk about Smurfette being not a real Smurf. Okay, but... Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> he's try- Gar- people always forget, I think, that Gargamel's trying to get the Smurfs because he's making gold out of them, and yeah. he figured that out because out of gold he made Smurfette. Yeah. Sorry. I remember that. I, I know you do, Piamina. Come on. I know you do. Well, yeah. But I mean, our listener base might not remember that. I'm just bringing that up. So, okay. So, interesting reference there. Yeah. So, that one of the... that's this is, one. This poem's pre-Smurfs, though, people. So. That, this, is, this is one of the storylines. I don't know if it is. When did the Smurfs come out in, in <laughs> France? Probably like 81 or 82. Well, before they came to America, wasn't it like French or something? Oh, Belgian? fuck. I didn't know that. It's I think it's French. Belgian or French or the something. The Smurfs originally. is Belgian? Yeah. French? I no might be wrong. It's way. not American. <laughs> it just came to America later. It's so European. You're right. The blue, um, the blue skin dwarf people with the but, white, with the white outfits. Well, we're getting getting away from the duplications here, which is what I'm trying to talk about. So yeah, that's one of the storylines. This chemist who creates the early girls, but a funny thing happens with the early girls, and this is where the title, the duplications, come from. We don't know this until it happens the first time. But one of the early girls, uh, who is called what is her name, Alouette, I think. Yeah, Alouette, and she meets this this fella named Pemistruck, and they fall in love, which isn't really supposed to happen for the early girls, but they fall in love. But the first time they have sex, a duplicate of a, of a city is created, and apparently that any time the early girls have sex, a duplicate of a city is created, of an existing city, that's slightly different in some way from the original city. So there starts to be all these duplicate cities popping up. This popping up all around. I want to get this book. So there's one. So that's one of the plot lines. And then the other main plot line, which is more of the pop art kind of thing I was talking about, is Mickey and Minnie Mouse are <laughs> making a uh, cross-country car trip in a Packard across Greece. It's sponsored by Canada Dry, and they're trying to set a world record. But um, Donald Duck and Clarabelle Cal are with them. And so you have them going across, and there's all these kind of, like, romantic triangles between Mickey and Minnie and Clarabelle and Donald going back and forth. Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse and Daisy Duck and Minnie Mouse in a love quadrangle. But it sounds... Like, what? It's it's actually amazing, (laughs) and it's really funny, and it sounds stranger than it is in some ways. Uh, but it's, it's great. It sounds stranger than it is. But it's definitely it's got that like like like. But that's what I mean. It's kind of got this pop art sensibility, right? Like pulling these pop culture things into it as well, on uh, intertwining them in with these with this other like kind of story, and that's sort of like a parody of epic poetry. And it's definitely got that kind of surrealist thing going sure. on too. Uh, but it's wonderful and it's funny, and it still manages to like in its in its lightheartedness and all these kind of weird off-the-wall things going on have some, like, really profound and beautiful moments in the middle of that. It's really great. Um, But it's a very different kind of poem. It's more directly trying to be, like, an epic poem. Like, I think there's kind of a form to it. I mean, it's free verse, but it's kind of like they're all in these little eight-line stanzas over and over again through the whole book. Uh, And, you know, I don't know. I think for some reason it's not the most read of Kenneth Koch's books, but I really like it a lot. Uh and it's a fun it's a fun read too, which I don't think you can say about too many book length poems. A lot of them are good, but they're kind of work to read. This is an easy read. It's fun to read. It's you're gonna be laughing out loud while you're reading it all the time. Cool. That sounds nice. So uh you wanted to talk about a book length poem by a New Orleans poet. Bill Lavender's Memory Wing. Put out by Black Widow Press, uh, two thousand eleven. With Charlie Franklin photograph on the front, which is pretty dope. When I think of this book, I think of sort of Bill's bringing us through this sort of like contemporary punk rock story and this personal historic piece that's in a a way it's it's totally a book poem. It's a book length. It's a book length poem. I think it's definitely a book length poem. Uh, I'm just kind of curious because it's been a little while since I read it, but I remember it being like very autobiographical. It, it is. 
Where is your connection to Dante here? Is my is well, why, I think that's that no, up? I think he, I think, I think Bill formats the book that way because if you look at the book, it's the it's it's uh it's part this and this is what this is why I went and got it because I remember this to my mother on her deathbed and then to my father in the underworld and then again to my sons from the underworld. Mm-hmm. So that's a direct Dante reference. You know, but it, but, I, what I'm but saying it's not is, a literal underworld. So, no. It's what is not the literal. what is the metaphorical underworld in the book? I guess the journey. I mean, the like the journey and taking sort of going down into the. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, I guess. You know, that, yeah, that makes sense. And like the experiential sort of dis disarray and dismay, and how life is a mess, but it's a beautiful mess, and this is what happens along the way when you, you know, when you as you go through. I mean, I don't know. It's it's like his. It's his geographic, biographical, poetic, uh, artist, builder, lover, father, you know, husband, like, like son, you know, like rocker. It's like this, this, uh, this, uh, very sort of distinct biographical. Do you want to maybe read us a little little selection from Yeah, I have this, I have this piece totally, um, right here. Page 204, just it's chance operation, but it's a nice spread. A form as any as if to write where to build. Something physical, architectural that would catch in the ground and hold while the river ran by it. Was later on much later when I woke up as it were and noticed that my fascination with words had cost me eight decades, nine times, nine years, gone in the twinkling of an eye that was the prison house of language and there was a rape going on. One word in my mouth and one up on my ass and that great crowd of spectators painting with word lusty thirsty for the rhythmic orderly flow of co and subordination. Those totally believable hallucinations we call nouns, the vapid fantasies of the verbs, the lifting of prepositions, the sweet nothings of articles, those goo goo eyes hungry for O's and ahs. What Beatrice will guide me out of this paradise? Which was she, in which body did she reside, in which face, which mind? I came to realize I had looked inside a sufficient number of minds and bodies to know what was not there. But let me tell you, lest any doubt remain the hell of the divorce years gave the lie to any amount of huffing and puffing. It's hard to be loverly when you're crawling on the floor. Of course, there were those moments playing kung fu with you two and my New bachelor pad or leaving for Arkansas one night at 2 a.m. Bad fuzzy radio on the lonesome road. There's something about promonotary. I don't know what that word is. Sorry. That comforts and helps. And one day in the era, I walked out the kitchen door into a backyard on Franklin and dogs were sunning in the glorious spotless spring afternoon. And I stared at them for a minute, maybe like years later that Bum would stare at the sky over Nance's shoulder, and I lay down in the grass to lay down and curled up and felt the sun on my back and Sasha, Sasha who was skittish and neurotic because we treated her so horribly, Sasha who never trusted us because she'd been ignored too many times, Sasha whom we never walked, Sasha who should by rights have hated me and hated all of us, who if she'd had the slightest inkling of self-respect would have run away and lived wild, Sasha the Siberian Husky, eaten up with fleas that stubborn and steadfast Sasha moved over our moved over and lay down beside me, lay down with her back against the back and told me something told me not the opposite would be all right. No, the opposite. She told me everything was going to be fucked up forever. Nothing is going to work out and nothing is going to get better. But this afternoon we are resting on the lawn. We are lying on the lawn, under the sun, swarm, a nest, and I'll remember this when you've lived this long again, another 40 years, and you'll be back here with me resting in the yard and remembering your future. So that's from the, the, the last section where he's that's talking from the last to, section of memory. to his sons, right? Yep. I do really like how he structured the book. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's one of the really nice parts about it. I mean, it's a real work. I mean, he does, he delves, he delves really deep and he finds rhythms, you know, and he yeah. really builds it. He builds it through 
It's a funny thing. I mean, I'm just thinking about it with, with this book, but with a lot of the books we talked about, maybe maybe the duplications being the only exception. The hard thing about a book-length poem is I think most of the time you've got this situation where you have to jump back and forth between kind of lyric and narrative elements, right? And I think that's definitely true in memory wing. And, and I mean, it's interesting how people navigate that in different ways, right? But that's kind of when you're, when you're doing something like that, you have to kind of jump, and for, jump back and forth between the lyric and the narrative. In his case, he's dealing with it more in an autobiographical mode, but it's still doing that all the time. Like Absolutely. Figuring out this, uh, yeah, this back he, and forth. Well, he's falling into this rhythm. He's falling into like this rhythm. And I think the natural rhythm comes through when you're clipping at page, you know, whatever, when you're writing a manuscript like that and you're clipping at page 50 or 60 or 100 or whatever it ends up being, but you're, he's, he's lulling in and out of the dream and the state you have to, it's almost like you have to slosh through that sort of like cerebral, you know, landscape in order to even be able to write something like that, like a, like a, a memory wing, you know, he's out on the wing, he's on the wing (laughs) and he's, he's tapping into this spot, this space that he's tapped into I thought it was important to include Bill into that because yeah. it seems, you know, as far as my reading scape. Uh, well, maybe while we're in the South, we should move to an Arkansas poet, which is kind of related to Bill, too. Anyway. Well, Bill's an Arkansas yeah, poet. Yeah, um, Have you ever read Frank Stanford? I have not. Which which book is this you're talking about now? So, well, a lot of people consider this his masterpiece, but it's his book-length poem, The Battlefield Where the Moon Says I Love You. I have not. No. It's an interesting, it's an interesting poem. So I guess kind of the idea is it's narrated. It's sort of, it's kind of a weird thing. It's kind of a mixture of like what Bill's doing and what some of our other people have been doing because it's partially autobiographical, but it's in this fantastical sort of world at the same time. It's narrated by this uh, teenager named Francis, but we know it's got a lot of, Frank Stanford's, and obviously Frank Francis, there's a... Sure. He wasn't, you know, he wanted you to know that there is some autobiographical elements to this. It's, some people say it's all one sentence, which I think is bullshit, It do, but it just doesn't have any punctuation. And it's 15,000 lines without punctuation. Wow. So it's a bit of, uh, it's a bit difficult to read. Um, it's definitely worth reading. It used to be really hard to find because the original printing was really small. But I think in it was either the late nineties or the early two thousands they finally did a reprint of it, which is which with the reprint is now out of print, but you can still find it at a decent price now. Uh so it's something you can read. Where for a long time it was just kind of this strange legendary thing, so it was so hard to get a copy of. But it's kind of like it's it's set in the south and it's kind of like this southern gothic sort of landscape and it's got a lot of violence and death in it and it's kind of this dreamlike sort of place but it's this dark kind of dreamlike place although it certainly has its fun elements to it and it's it's fun things to it and it's filtered through the mind of a teenage boy so it's got this kind of adolescent sexual kind of thing going on too there's definitely fun elements to it but it's also kind of got this darkness to it at the same time and Francis is just, you know, it's it's mostly like through about Francis and his voice. And he can he kind of gets these visions where he can kind of see things about both what's going to happen and just gets like a greater insight into the world. Um, but it's it, but it's a really interesting poem and a good poem. And I don't think it's one that people have read a lot. It's 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 really good. I thought I had a copy of it, but I could not find it on my bookshelf. And in <laughs> fact, I immediately went and ordered a, cop, a copy of it because I. I must have lost the copy that I had. Uh, and it's it's also has a lot of that shift between lyric and narrative like we were talking about with with Memory Wing too. I think it is in some ways overrated, although it's the good parts are so good, I still recommend everyone reading it. Uh, but there's parts where the language kind of falls apart for me and I don't, I have a hard time with it. But the parts that are good are so good, it doesn't really matter. And it's, for, you know, I came out in 77 and it do, it deals with race and sex in a way that I don't think a lot of poems were doing at the time. And certainly for something that's a book length poem and dealing with it. Well, and it's definitely his most uh, iconic work. Like, I mean, I think I like some of his shorter things better personally, but I can see why people it's it's 
idiosyncratically him, you know, like it's got all these things that you don't see in other poets that you only see in him, which is kind of always nice. Sure. But, you know, he's he's one of those Southern poets that, you know, doesn't always get his due, I think. Frank Stanford. Yeah. Um, I had one other poet I wanted to talk about, completely different. We're going to leave America for a second, but still English language. Just because it's a whole different kind of kind of uh, book length poem, uh, and I don't think people always read him anymore. What do you think of? And I think I know what your answer is going to be when I say the name of the poet Christopher Smart. What comes to mind? I've never even heard that name as a poet 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 name before. <laughs> Christopher Smart, British poet. Because what normally people think of, because for some reason this is what always uh, what always gets anthologized, is like, oh, the cat guy. Because there's this little poem about Jeffrey the cat, his cat. And that's what always gets anthologized, which is actually not a standalone poem. It's part of his book-length poem. But it, for some reason, that's what always gets anthologized for him, is they pull out these lines and publish it as if it's a standalone poem. That's unfortunate for a poet of this caliber. That yeah. they always publish this one thing of his out of this book-length poem. Is- well, and don't get me wrong, I like the Jeffrey the Cat lines, but they feel very different when you pull them out of the poem as 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 opposed to actually being in the context of the full work. It's very strange. And often it's not even really shown that it's part of this larger work. So Christopher Smart, we're talking about the 1700s here, and... The work that I really want to talk about, he has a lot of shorter works that sometimes you see. They're not as good, although some of it's still pretty good. Um, This is Jubilate Año, or Rejoice in the Lamb is what it really means. Rejoice in the Lamb. So Christopher Smart was an interesting fellow. Um, He grew up, I think, really wanting to be a preacher and all these things, although that didn't quite work out for him but he started going through this period where he just really wanted to pray all the time and he would just get down in the middle of the street and get down on his knees and start praying and ask people to pray with him what so that's like schwitter's like getting down on the street in the middle of like this like snowstorm to like uh paint like the right color on a piece that he was working on and everyone's like what the fuck are you doing and he's like I have to do it right now, right here. I'm adding this like little piece of paper and this like little blue dot. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> very much like that. He would just kind of be walking through the streets and be like, get down and pray and like ask people, pray with me now. Pray with me now. Uh, so he got put in, in, in the insane asylum uh, because of this. Um, and he was initially put in the St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics in London. That that was actually the name of it, St. Luke's Hospital for Lunatics. And then later he got moved into a private madhouse um, for 1757 to 1763. But, I mean, it's not really clear if he was actually, actually had a mental problem or not, because I don't know that getting down on the street and, and praying necessarily <laughs> means that you have a mental illness. But he was in, uh, but he was in the hospital for a long time because of that. But this long poem, he wrote this while he was in those while he was in those uh, institutions, and it's this really—it's a totally different kind of long poem than what we've been talking about. It's this kind of list poem praising everything in God's creation, right? And it's really kind of got this focus on certain subjects. There's a lot about plants and animals and minerals, but there's also a lot of things about like the people at the time too, like the people that he knew. But a lot about plants and animals and minerals. Uh, and I guess part of that was because the only books that he had when he was in these institutions was he had the King James Bible, a Latin thesaurus, a guide for London pharmacists. That was in Latin. Okay. Uh, a use, Hill's Useful Family Herbal, Miller's Gardener's Dictionary, and Hill's History of Plants. So I guess that's kind of why it has this focus on these things. And it's kind of set up like every – it's 1,200 lines long. <laughs> And every line either begins with let or for. And it's kind of like if you think of poetry in the Bible or Hebrew poetry in general, it's kind of got that idea of it being like that parallelism thing being 
what's driving it forward. Okay. Just having that rep- repetition of the parallel syntax going through. And, you know, it's a very odd and wonderful work. But the amazing part about it is it's just kind of got this great wonder and awe at everything that, you know, you really would like to, I think, inculcate in yourself to have this kind of amazement at everything around you. Um, <laughs> and it's pro- and it's even strange. It's even strange like more amazing when you think that this is at a time where he's shut away from the world. I really like this. I really like a Yubilate Agno or Agno, depending on how how you decide to pronounce it, whether you're using church Latin or classical Latin pronunciation. So just to give you some idea, this is from one of the, from one of the let sections excerpt here. Okay. Let Nebuchadnezzar bless with the grasshopper. The pomp and vanities of the world are as the herb of the field but the glory of the Lord increaseth forever. Let Naboth bless with the canker worm. Envy is cruel and killeth and prayeth upon that which God has giveth to aspire and bear fruit. Let Lud bless with the elk, the strenuous asserter of his liberty and the maintainer of his ground. Let Obadiah with the palmer worn bless God for the remnant that is left. Let Augur bless with the cockatrice. The consolation of the world is deceitful, and temporal honor the crown of him that creepeth. Let Ithiel bless with the baboon, whose motions are regular in the wilderness, and who defendeth himself with a staff against the assailant. Let Eucle bless with the chameleon, which feedeth on the flowers and washeth himself in the dew. Let Lemuel bless with the wolf, which is a dog without a master, but the Lord hears his cries and feeds him in the desert. Let Hananiah bless with the civet, which is pure from benevolence. Let Azarias bless with the reindeer, who runneth upon the waters and wadeth through the land in snow. Let Mishiel bless with the stoat. The praise of the Lord gives propriety to all things. Let Saverin bless with the elephant, who gave his life for his country that he might put on immortality. Let Nehemiah, the imitator of God, bless with the monkey, who is worked down from man. Let Manassas bless with the wild ass. Liberty begetteth, in, begetteth insolence, but necessity is the mother of prayer. And wow. it goes on <laughs> like that. But it's amazing. And like every little couplet, as much as it's by things he's saying, it's amazing that he can keep bringing up these animals and say these things about them that on some level you're like, well, I've never heard that about an animal. But they're all like amazingly seem kind of appropriate. Okay. And it's great. Not all of its animals, this is what's plants and some of its things, and then it gets into things more about people. It's a great poem. I mean, it's kind of like outsider art in a way. Although I, although he was always a poet and he wrote a lot of more traditional things, except for this, but this is like by far his best work. And it's just this amazing Huge list poem, basically. <laughs> it's a psalm? It's kind of, well, I mean, yeah, it has those elements of like how psalms have that yeah. kind of structure. But I think all Hebrew poetry kind of has that structure of that. That was kind of of the, of the time, like ancient Hebrew poetry has this kind of it's parallelism instead of meter, right? Like you have... Um, Parallel syntax instead of having meter is what's what's pulling the things together. Okay. So, you know, one one poem that immediately came to mind. Have you ever read Anne Carson's autobiography of Red? Right. I what? have the, I have the sequel here, but not the original. Yeah. I have the um, I've read Doc. And I guess it's poetry. It's called A Novel in Verse is the subtitle. So This is Megan's book. I gotta give it back to her. <laughs> <laughs> um You know, so the kind of idea of autobiography in Red is she's reinterpreting sort of this work of... Again, it's another one of these hybrid works. She's reinterpreting... that the There's a Greek uh, poet called uh, Stesichorus, but we don't really have any of his work. We just have, like, little fragments of it. Huh. Um, and so she's kind of, like, using that as a jumping-off point to write this book. Do you know about this? But it's like a lot, we have a lot of ancient authors that we know about them because other people talk about them and surviving things we have, but we don't really have anything except fragments, and a lot of which are just mentions that other authors talk about them, right? Um, 
Floating pages rescued from the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. Well, <laughs> something like that. I mean, you know, manuscripts get lost in all kinds of ways. It's kind of interesting what survives. But you've got this poet, Desichorus, who I think was a, I mean, as far as we can tell, I think was a pretty, uh, pretty popular poet at the time. I think especially because he wrote a lot about a thing, about, a, about myths that fit into a lot of the kind of cults that were built on these sort of hero, these hero cults at the time. Uh, so, you know, obviously he was popular. So she kind of took that as a jumping off point to write this book because we don't really have much, we don't really know what his poetry was like that much. Apparently he wrote some kind of lyric poems on epic topics. I guess he wrote some some piece that we know that he wrote that's about the 10th labor of Hercules, about Geron. You know, Geron the monster, The usually he's depicted with three heads, although he's not in, in, in Carson's book. No, I don't know about Geron. It's, it's the 10th labor. It's the 10th labor wow. of Hercules' labors. Sounds like a real so, motherfucker. Uh, but, so that's kind of her jumping off point for the book. Well, in the real labor, you know, Hercules kills Garon, right? But, yeah, he's, he slays him one head at a time. <laughs> so, but in, in Carson's book, The Autobiography of Red, um, Garon is red and winged. That's why the red in the title. Um, but in... In Carson's book, instead, Garon falls in love with Hercules, and they kind of have this little affair, but then Hercules doesn't pay attention to him afterwards. And that's kind of what the book is about, right? Like, about how him trying to kind of, like, get over this love affair um, with Hercules. And going through it, there's it's kind of this, like, meditation on what is it to be human versus being a monster, and just this kind of meditation on love in general and what that means and all those kind of things and i don't know a lot of people swear by this book and love it uh i have to admit i could never get that much into it <laughs> which I, I i always have kind of have a trouble with ann carson there's things that i like about her stuff but there's things that i don't and a good friend of mine always was like well you gotta read autobiography of red you'll love that and i like it i like it to some extent but I can't totally, I can't totally get behind it. What about uh, Red Doc? I never read Red Doc. I'd be All right. interested. To Maybe see I should bit. read Red Doc and report back. Maybe we should. Well, do you want to? You want to have a small? Um, do you want me to just dip into it and just a randomly... small selection from from uh, autobiography of Red first? Yeah, sounds good. So, like, like I said, um, you know, it's kind of this love affair. So you kind of get these things where it's talking. It's very narrative at some points, and then it gets lyric. And it, it, again, one of those jumping back and forth between narrative and lyric. Oh, and it's also like set, like I said, it's based off of this, but it's also like kind of setting this in a modern situation, right? Um, ultimately, like Garon, when he's getting over his love affair, he decides to become a photographer. That's like his his artistic you know, thing that's going to get him over this love affair with Hercules so he can get over it. And then he uh, eventually moves to South America, but then he runs into Hercules and his new uh, his new South American boyfriend when they're down there. Oh, really? Yeah. So, <laughs> just to get a little... So this is like a short, um, short little excerpt. His brain was jerking forward like a bad projector. He saw the doorway the house, the night, the world, and on the other side of the world somewhere, Heracles, laughing, drinking, getting into a car, and Geron's whole body formed. So that's kind of, you know, just to give some sense of what the language is like. Yep. The things that I can say that I like about it is, I like that it does that modernization thing. I think it's that can be fun and kind of playful. And there's some nice, there's some really nice language in it. And it can be really beautiful at times. And I like this idea of like reinterpreting myth if you can find a good way of doing it. And I think she she's good at that, about taking myth and reinterpreting it in a way where people can access it now. Uh, I think my problem that I have is it's a really fine line when you're reworking material like that or you're playing with this kind of epic standpoint. Like part of what I really like about the duplications is how fun and playful it really is where i think sometimes ann carson hits it right like it should be and then sometimes she just totally misses the mark and I, sometimes it just takes itself too seriously and there's this weird kind of discordant jumping back and forth in okay. between the moments where she hits it and the moments where she, she doesn't. doesn't 
I mean, there's parts of it that are just, that are wonderful, but then there's, and I don't know. And then, I don't know, I think that's a weird thing. You're taking this mythic thing, and I know she's trying to modernize it and make it accessible, which I like that impulse. But there's, but she's, in some ways, it's smoothing down the mythic into like a mundane love affair, which I don't know if I like that. It's kind of more interesting to go the other way around, take something mundane and make it mythic rather than take something mythic and make it mundane. Although there's probably some in-between spot that's interesting, but I, I don't know. I think it's a kind of strange little little spot to be in. And it can at times feel a little stuffy and pretentious to me. I don't know, but a lot of people disagree with me, and maybe I'm totally wrong. But to me, that's kind of my problem I have with it a little bit. Yeah, and then she wrote this sequel, like you said, called Red Dock, which I think you have over there. Yep. Why is it like that on there? I think there's like a carrot after the title. There is. Is it supposed to be like a computer yeah. command line or something? I don't know that's what, what that's... it looks like to me. Yeah. Should I should I just You wanna do, you do... wanna just bibliomancy us a little selection from Red Dock here? Sure. People have no idea what things are like for him, physical things. This blacker and blacker spiral down it goes, his looks are gone. Strength broken, he hates pity. A current of blacker flows through him, impairment, and he lie on down on the floor. Arms throw themselves over himself. Prometheus is still addressing the universe. What are your eyes? What is your justice? You see me gripping this frayed rope end of pain for the last 10,000 years. Who freely who free me finally sad goes blank. Later, the floor strengthens and hardens around him. Eyes open, but they are breakable. He will not move them. My heart is like a singing bird. Does he say this? For no has crossed the room and is standing above him. Get your head out of your butt. For no says, nudging a boot. Sad views him upside down, whose nest is in a watered chute. No one hears. He staggers upright. For no starts to hum. They waltz. Men waltz. Elipisodously, like balloons, G thinks he is watching from the doorway. 18th century balloons. He'd gone to an academic dinner, academic boyfriend once. Cretan archaeology left, and 18th century balloons write the two idea ancient ladies he was seated between. He paddled the blue of Nassos during the soup course, then turned with the haddock to the best part of ballooning is watching your own shadow race over the groan below. Yes, a winged person, he Knew the racing self, its areoli of mysterious light gathering from dictionaries we no longer use. It's strange, like pathos way down there. She, right, was soon grinning with all her battered teeth and sailing on past haddocks to splash and dash. Technique also called flat hatting. She ruffled his nape as if they both were boys. Your custard is cooling, said Nasus. Left a roar of gravel in the driveway jolts G from reverie. He glances to the window. Her Ida's climbing from the back of a taxi and the CMO after her. Up the surprise front steps, her plaid sports coat looking not so fresh. Dread skips into G. If Ida is here, who's looking after the herd? So what did you think of that? I mean, I know it's a little unfair. We just picked something at random, but... Well, no, I, okay, so the observation... At random, so what do we have? We have this persona, these char- these different characters, characters that are resembling of symbols more so, like the way that she names her characters in the piece. Again, just open it up well, and read it for the all, first time. Well, most of those are mythological characters. I assume they G, are. They are. I assume G is Garon there. That's right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. yeah. So she drops that, you know, into into a, you know, G it was working through just a different formula of channels. It was a different threads that she was weaving. That was it. Well, I like, it I was mean, a, it was, it was I like using the language the same, in that, but yeah, but that's, but I, but like, let's, let's wax a little on it's the, on too the on academic the, to me, man. It's, yeah, it's like, a little, it's a little, it's too like, I don't, I want it to be like, you're, you're working with these myths. So I want it to be more playful. And especially like you're taking this and you're setting it in a model. Like he's getting into a taxi in that passage and everything. But it's not funny. It's just like a weird juxtaposition that doesn't mean anything. So it needed to go another way, another another level. 
Yeah. I don't know. I think it's like a strange place that she tries to go with those things sometimes. Where it's not far enough. It's still too reverent. It's still too reverent to the source in some way. Or I think if you're using that, it, you probably need to be more irreverent than she's being. But it obviously speaks to some people. I know people who that's their favorite book and they love it. Yeah. Um. So maybe it's just not for me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty. But I thought we should mention mention it. It's definitely a prominent book length. Uh, At least this. Yeah. Uh, poem. And well, and then she is. It's really two because then she did the sequel. Yeah. It's a pretty book. That's for sure. And I love the concept. I love the concept of it in a lot of ways. It's a funny concept. Yeah. I mean, book length poems are a funny thing. I like the idea that it reopens poetry back up to kind of more of its primal roots in a lot of ways about it being about storytelling, which don't get me wrong. I like that poetry has escaped storytelling in a lot of ways. I like things about lyric where it gets to escape storytelling, but I mean, that's the, that's the root of what poetry was in a lot of ways, sitting around playing music, telling a story, retelling a story in a poetic way, whether it's, your own story or whether it's a mythical story. I think that's what poetry, where poetry kind of began. And the thing I like about book length poems is it's kind of going back to that root, right? Going back to where poetry came from in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to do well, I think. Uh, well, I mean, anytime you're doing a long work, that's a very different thing to write something long than it is to write something short. And poets are probably more ill-equipped to do it than most writers because <laughs> it's not the format you normally walk, work in. It's not walk-in is probably good, too. It's not the place you normally walk in, right? Yeah. So you've got to learn a different way of walking, right? But so it's amazing that people have managed to do it well. But I also think it opens up all these avenues of exploration that – other formats of poetry don't allow you. It gives you freedom in a way that I think the lyric doesn't, that I think any kind of shorter form doesn't, right? It gives you this ability to kind of go off on these wild sort of meanderings that can be wonderful and that people don't necessarily open themselves up to. So I appreciate that of anyone who's written a book-length poem. It takes, uh, it takes a different type of scope and understanding on the language. And I think sort of what I take from all this is, you know, when we talk about the earlier works, which works that did we talk about that are earlier in the conversation? Did the writers in the later works in the conversation read? Yeah. You know, well, like I mean, you brought up Dante and that's always an obvious one, but it is interesting to think because there's a lot of those traditions to draw from. And I don't think everyone's drawing from the same traditions necessarily. Uh, no, right. Not yeah. at all. They can't be. They're drawing from different traditions. They're putting their spin on it, you know, and it's 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 an interesting conversation to have to consider that when you talk about certain poets, it, rec it reminds me or recollects or brings something back from my canon of learning and understanding and says like, wow, okay, so like this thing, when you're talking about Bernadette, I'm thinking of this. You're talking about Lavender, I'm thinking yeah. of this. You're talking about Carson, I'm thinking about this. Whatever it is, it's like, it's clear that we know that Carson was reading Stesichorus. Well, I mean, I don't well, know. She was using that as a jumping off point, but she's obviously coming out of a classical tradition there mm -hmm. um, in some ways, but she also obviously has her foot in modern poetry too, and she's trying to like draw on both of those traditions. Sure. Um, but I mean, another thing that I think is great about it's like the difference between a composer writing an etude, a piano etude, and writing an orchestral work, right? Like the difference between writing a lyric poem and writing a book length thing, yes, it's difficult, but it opens up all these possibilities to you. There's, you can't develop a theme, you can't come back in repetition in the same way in a shorter work that you can in a longer work. And it opens up all these possibilities and all these things that you can do that you could never do in a shorter work, which is part of what's really nice about it. Okay. Right? Yeah. 
you know? Yeah, because you're basically coming through and you're you're able to tap. I, I was saying this earlier. I keep coming back to this because the thought I keep having is you keep tapping into this different rhythm and this different place in, I don't know, I don't want to go too sappy on it, but yourself. Like you're recollecting the the collective memory, the collective consciousness, the collective memory of humanity. So, I mean, I don't know. I think I think this is an interesting conversation today, and I hope that even people who are pretty well-versed in book-length poems, there's maybe one or two that you hadn't heard of here and that you go out and read them. Uh, and that I know, like we said, book-length poems are kind of an investment to read them, but it's totally worth it. Don't shy away from them just because they're long. Like, that's something we need to read. That's something... You can't really consider yourself well-versed in poetry if you're only reading short verse. You need to read long things, too. Uh, yeah, I think there's a... It's, you know, you need to be about 10 to 20, 30 books in in order to really tackle it right. And there's a lot out there, and you know, we will also want to hear from you and tell us what we need to be reading. Yeah, oh, and tell us the long poem books Please. we missed, because even just the... I was surprised looking through. There was a lot of ones I had never heard of. Yeah. So let us know which ones we missed. Tell us. Tell us those. We'll uh, throw them up in the throw them up in the links. And I am definitely going to put some things in the show notes that are ones that we didn't necessarily talk about that I ran into that looked interesting to me. Just so you have kind of a reading list you can go through and and follow some uh, find some long poems to read. So hopefully you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, what would really help us out is if you could go and give us a review on iTunes. Uh, that's really how we get new listeners. It's the best thing you can do is to give us, us a review. Give us a review on that. And we want to thank Johnny Panic this week who gave us a review on iTunes. Thank you, Johnny Panic, for giving yeah. us a review. Uh, and you know, maybe if you give us a review, we'll mention your name on air as well. <laughs> All right, thank you, and we'll see you again next week.